0: Hello and welcome to NewsHour. It's coming to you live from the BBC World Service studios in London. I'm Tim Franks. On today's programme, Facebook admits it made mistakes and breached its users' trust over a data-harvesting scandal linked to President Trump's election campaign. We'll look at whether the European Union is about to change the game when it comes to the tech giants and data. That's our top story. Also on the programme, Nigerian officials say that more than 100 schoolgirls abducted by militants last month have been released. So what deal did the government strike with Boko Haram? And the rhetoric winds up, as now the British Foreign Secretary compares Russia, staging this year's World Cup, to Adolf Hitler hosting the Olympics. First, though, there is one constant from the ructions over Facebook, the data analysis firm Cambridge Analytica, and politicians and regulators across the Western world, and that is the question whether the episode will lead to a new reckoning about the value of data, about how we as users and consumers of the internet relate to those vast companies which provide all those terribly useful online services. In a moment, we'll ask whether a major new European Union regulation on data protection, due to come into force in two months' time, will change that balance between the individual and the tech giant. First, as I mentioned right at the start of the programme, in the last hour and a half, the Facebook CEO, Mark Zuckerberg, has given a statement for the first time since all those allegations about the misuse of personal data were made. The BBC's business editor is Simon Jack. What did Mr Zuckerberg have to say? Well, he
1: said that he accepts that Facebook had a duty to protect its users' data. He admits that mistakes were made and he says we need to do more. I don't see the word sorry anywhere in here, so it's not exactly a mea culpa, and he tries to lay out exactly what happened, how these 50 million users' data ended up, if you like, in the wrong hands. He said in 2013, they got an application from a university researcher who wanted to do a personality app. He was able to do it with a few hundred thousand users because of the way the Facebook platform was arranged at that time. That allowed him to scrape, collect data from up to 50 million other users without necessarily their consent. In 2014, the platform was changed, so that wouldn't have been possible. So this couldn't have happened again today. Also worth bearing in mind that in 2014, there's a lot of theory that, you know, democracies being undermined and in particular this was a deliberate attempt to try and install Donald Trump in the White House. I don't think in 2013-2014 Donald Trump was even a credible candidate in his own mind. So it may well have been used for political purposes. I don't think it started life as an installed Donald Trump project. That seems clear from this. Now they say we, they learned, they asked Cambridge Analytica, this consultancy, to delete the data. It emerged they hadn't. They banned them. Anyway, so that's history, and this is what's been walloping the Facebook share price because it looks as if they've not been diligent enough with customer data. What is he going to do in the future? They're going to say, even though we tightened up all these controls, there's lots of suitcases, if you like, of data still lying all around the world in people's servers, which they weren't very rigorous about monitoring. They're going to go back and audit all of those companies who hang on to data from before that time. If they don't submit to the audit, they're going to be banned. Secondly, developers access the people who make these apps their access to our data will be more restricted for example if you haven't used your app in three months they won't be able to have access to all the stuff that you like on facebook and thirdly you will understand much better which apps you've allowed to access your data now they have a lot of t's and c's anyway they're usually too long everyone just goes i agree at the bottom if they fancy the look of an app they're going to say they're going to put a button at the top just so you see which apps on your phone can access your data big question has it done enough to remedy the situation. Share price down 10% in the last three days. It's only up a bit at the moment. So I think that shows you that reputational trust issues, some of the damage still permeates
0: after this incident. The BBC's business editor, Simon Jack. Earlier in the day, we had another first, one of the people at the centre of the allegations, giving his first interview in the UK. Dr Alexander Cogan was the Cambridge University psychology academic who provided the link between Facebook and and Cambridge Analytica. In 2014, he gathered the profiles of 30 million people based on their Facebook data and then passed that information on to Cambridge Analytica. Facebook say that that was a violation of its policies. Dr Cogan has been speaking to the BBC's Michelle Hussein about his research.
2: The focus of the project was on Americans and the idea was to collect data and to make predictions or best guesses really about how they would answer certain surveys and in particular personality surveys. Who approached whom? Uh, They approached me.
3: They've said something entirely different. They have said Alexander Nix, who's now been suspended as the chief executive, says we were approached by an academic who said he had the legitimate and legal wherewithal to collect data on Facebook users that we might be able to use. Is that correct?
2: Uh, In my opinion, that's a fabrication. What happened was they approached me in terms of the usage of Facebook data. They wrote the terms of service for the app. They provided the legal advice that this was all appropriate. So I'm definitely surprised by their comments, and I don't think they are accurate.
3: How did you then go about collecting it?
2: For the app, we took the terms of service that they wrote – And to make sure it was all commercial in nature, we changed the name, the logo, things like that. And then we recruited, I think, around 200,000 people through a survey company called Qualtrics. Each person was paid to do the survey and to authorize that. And each person was presented with specific data we were going to try to collect. And also terms of service that SEL had drafted for us that detailed exactly the commercial terms of the project.
3: So they knew that they were signing over their data for commercial purposes?
2: Uh, That's my understanding.
3: What about the data of their friends?
2: Uh, Same thing. I mean, it was their view that this was an appropriate project. I mean, what was communicated to me strongly is that thousands and maybe tens of thousands of apps were doing the exact same thing and that this was a pretty normal use case and a normal situation for usage of Facebook data.
3: But the people, the Facebook users, who were agreeing to let you use their data for commercial reasons, were they also agreeing to that for their friends' data?
2: That certainly was my understanding of what was communicated to me.
3: And how did Cambridge Analytica use that data?
2: Honestly, I don't know. I was never part of the subsequent process. Certainly, I've read many reports, just like everybody else has but I have no way of actually firsthand knowing any of that.
3: So you handed it over and you don't know what they did with it? Yeah. But Facebook are now saying that you violated their platform policies when you passed the information that you got from there to Cambridge Analytica. Why are you saying that's not correct?
2: I mean, like, I'm honestly stunned by most of this. This has never been my understanding, the, like... The events of the past week have been a total shell shock. And my view is that I'm being basically used as a scapegoat by both Facebook and Cambridge Analytica when, honestly, the we thought we were acting perfectly appropriately. You know, I was doing the project for free. I didn't have money to go get a lawyer. I would have certainly done that in retrospect. But the, You
3: were doing the project for free?
2: Yeah, I mean, the, my motivation was to get a data set that uh, then I could do research on. Yeah, I've never profited from this in any way personally.
3: Well, you I were paid by Cambridge Analytica, money. weren't you? Your company was paid by Cambridge so, Analytica.
2: So they provided resources to pay for the cost of the data collection. Which was how much? Somewhere between seven dollars and $800,000, but a long time ago, so I'm not 100% sure, but somewhere in that range.
3: So your company was paid close to a million dollars for its Facebook data set.
2: Yes, but it, to, to just to be clear where this goes, this money was paid mostly to Qualtrics directly for the participants because each person it would cost 3 to $4, and so that's where really the money went.
0: Alexander Kogan speaking to Michelle Hussain. As it happens, in two months' time in the European Union, there'll be what some see as a revolutionary change to online data-sharing rules. The EU is bringing in the General Data Protection Regulation. Sophie Intervelt is Dutch member of the European Parliament, and sits on the Committee on Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs, which covers, among other things, regulation of internet privacy.
4: Your data can, in principle, only be used for processing if you give your consent. Uh, there are a couple of situations where consent is not necessary, but uh, like in this situation, a number of Facebook users had given their consent, although it. I'm not really sure that they understood what they were giving their consent to.
0: And that's absolutely key, isn't it? I mean, it's all very well to say we should have the principle of consent. But if you've got these incredibly intricate, very long uh, end user agreements... People just click yeah, on agree, but, don't and, they? And
4: this is this is something that will have to change under the new law that enters into force in in May of this year, where uh, these privacy notices have to be very clear and understandable for everybody. And when you give your consent, it cannot just be a tick box exercise. People really have to understand actively what they're consenting to. And the other aspect is, of course, that through the Facebook users that gave their consent. Apparently, these people got access to data of other people who weren't even aware that their data were being used. So they hadn't given their consent. Now, that's clearly illegal. And, And something that also struck me is that what they pretended was that this was about either market research or scientific research. Now, the privacy laws are a bit less strict for scientific research because that has a clear public benefit the public objective, but it should not be abused for this kind of purposes. That's very obvious. So I would really call on the data protection authorities to pay particular heed to the application of that clause.
0: A lot of people have made a lot of fuss out of this recent episode about privacy. But I just wonder, coming out of this big new data directive that that you've got coming Mm -hmm. in in a couple of months, whether the majority of people really care do they want to read even a shortened privacy agreement? They just want ease and and speed, yeah. don't they?
4: Absolutely, and that is why in this this new General Data Protection Regulation, or GDPR as we call it, we have made it easier for the users. Because I think actually a lot of people care about privacy. Lots of people think it's very important, but they feel a bit powerless, faced with giants like Facebook or Google, or they just don't know how to protect their privacy. And we've made it easier because we've put a lot more obligations on data processing companies to ask the users for consent, to give them information. The standard setting should be privacy-friendly. They have to do an audit. They have to have a data protection officer. So there there are lots and lots of safeguards there.
0: What do you say to those people who argue that, this might mean that uh, standards change in the European Union, but essentially it will become an island where you know, th- there will be less information out there for the real innovators because no, you're, actually, you're withholding will... data from, yeah, for no, example, the will... pioneers behind artificial intelligence.
4: Yeah, No, it will actually become an island of democracy and freedom and justice, I think, because if we see how these data have been abused then I don't think that that has anything to do with innovation or the benefit of all.
0: Sophie Interveld, she's a Dutch member of the European Parliament and sits on the Committee on Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs. And in about 15 minutes, we'll hear from the uh, European Commission's Commission and... I'll try that again. European Commission's Economics Affairs man on how uh, he is going to be bringing in new rules on tax for the tech giants. This is News Hour, live from the BBC. You probably got the fact that it's live by the fact that I had to have about five goes at saying the word commission. Uh, later in the programme, we'll be uh, hearing about more than 40 African countries agreeing to create one of the world's biggest trade blocs.
5: The advantages we gain by creating one African market will also benefit our trading partners around the world, and that is a good thing.
0: Rwandan, President Paul Kagame thinks it's a good thing. We'll discuss that trade deal in just over 10 minutes. One headline from the BBC newsroom, as we were hearing, Facebook has admitted making mistakes and breaching trust with its users over a data harvesting scandal. This is Air from the BBC World Service. I'm Tim Franks. The British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson loves his florid language. Today he was using it to disparage Russia. Mr Johnson predicted that the Russian President Vladimir Putin will glory in the fo- forthcoming Football World Cup in the same way Adolf Hitler did in 1936 when the Olympic Games were held in Berlin. The Foreign Secretary was answering questions from members of the British Parliament's Foreign Affairs Select Committee.
1: First of all, I think that your characterization of uh, what is going to happen uh, in Moscow, in uh, the World Cup, or in all the venues, yes, I think the comparison with, with 1936 is is certainly right, and uh, I think it's a, an emetic prospect, frankly, for uh, to think of uh, uh, the, a, a Putin glorying in, in uh, this, this this sporting event.
0: Boris Johnson suggesting he might bring up his lunch at the prospect of Vladimir Putin presiding over the World Cup. David Large is Professor of European Studies at the University of California, Berkeley, and has written about the 1936 Olympics. What does he make of the comparison?
5: Well, I think there is some legitimacy there to the comparison. In both cases, you have uh, world leaders who are under considerable attack from outside. Those leaders wish to distract from the criticism by putting on an elegant and superbly organized show. In both cases, we have leaders taking risks in the sense that if these things don't work out, Hitler took a risk. If the games were extensively boycotted, then he would have lost a considerable prestige. I think Putin worries about the same thing. So, yes, you have. Leaders trying to put forth the images of their countries as amiable, as peace-loving. So in that sense, there are definite parallels. There are differences, though, as, as well. Putin has been in power for a long time and doesn't face the same kinds of domestic problems, perhaps, that Hitler did. But I think there is concern that in the case of Putin, the games can be used to promote some sort of internal legitimacy. It does add an element of legitimacy, perhaps, to his regime, which is why he wants to have them in the first place. And that was certainly true for Hitler as well.
0: By 1936, Hitler hadn't committed most of the crimes. How far... Has the Foreign Secretary, do you think, overreached himself in comparing Vladimir Putin to Adolf Hitler?
5: The problem is that in 1936, as you say, Hitler hadn't yet done all the despicable things he would do. Whereas while Putin has repressed dissent, shut down opposition media, things of that sort, it hasn't gone as far as, as Hitler had done. Now, the other thing, though, to keep in mind is that on the international front, in some ways, Putin has been even more aggressive because there have been the cyber attacks, the doping issue that I mentioned before, but there's also these poisonings. There was the annexation of the Crimea and the support for the separatists in eastern Ukraine. Those actions were actually slightly more aggressive than what Hitler had done as of 36. Interestingly enough, on the one hand, domestically, I think the parallel is not very strong because Hitler was much more brutal than Putin. But if you look at the foreign stage, then you could perhaps argue that Putin has been equally, if not even more, problematical up to that point. After 36, things got very different in Germany, you had the Anschluss, you had the Munich crisis and the takeover of Czechoslovakia and, and, the, and the rest of it. We don't know what Putin's going to do down the line. Of, and there's hope that he's not going to turn out to be anywhere near as aggressive as Adolf Hitler was.
0: Boris Johnson said that he would find it difficult to watch the World Cup in Russia on a full stomach. Were there people who at the time in 1936 similes said that much as they loved the Olympics, they couldn't abide the thought of it being held in Berlin?
5: Oh, absolutely. There was a, a major boycott effort. The US almost boycotted uh, the 36 games, came within a a vote and a half of deciding not to go. And had the U.S. not gone, then it's quite possible Britain wouldn't have gone, Canada wouldn't have gone, maybe France wouldn't have gone. So absolutely, there was that kind of opposition. Now, Putin has said, or the Russians have said that their ticket sales in advance of the World Cup are pretty good. I I can well imagine that there would be people who would decide not to go, given the, the human rights record of Putin these days.
0: David Large, Professor of European Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. This weekend, thousands of Americans are expected to march on Washington to demand a change in gun laws in the wake of last month's Florida school shooting. Some in the US have called for their country to follow Australia's example, back in 1996 when 35 people died in the Port Arthur Massacre. The Australia government swiftly introduced strict new gun controls and a large-scale buyback of firearms. Could a similar plan work in the US? Here's our Sydney correspondent, Hal Griffith.
6: Gunfire rings out at a tourist site in Tasmania. The indiscriminate murder of 35 people by one man carrying an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle would become the worst mass shooting in Australian history, it left a nation in shock. The response was swift and comprehensive. It included an unprecedented buyback of firearms, which over the course of a year saw nearly 650,000 guns being bought from the owners by the government at market value. Tim Fisher was Australia's Deputy Prime Minister at the time. A big ask was being made across Australia. It was only fair that uh, people were handing over a property right, uh, an asset and that for that to happen, there had to be compensation and fair and adequate compensation. Did it make a difference then and for the 20 years since then? Absolutely. The buyback led to hundreds of thousands of guns being destroyed, but that was only one measure. There was also a ban on automatic weapons and a strict new licensing regime. The relatives of Port Arthur victims were at the forefront of campaigning at the time.
4: There are 35 people who no longer have the ability to
6: improve this country. Walter Mekak, who lost his wife and two daughters in the massacre, became a very public voice. 22 years on, he now sees parallels with the position of the young Americans pushing for change. People were in shock. They said, we, just, we don't want to go down this path. We're, you know, we're horrified that this could happen. And we don't want it to keep happening, we want it to actually have change. And it really came down to the arsenal, the, the firearms. Yeah, you know, I thought, well, this, we need to change that. We, for that to be so simple to happen, this is a good place to start. This is a good legacy for all these 35 people who have died. But not everyone here is happy with the gun laws. There may not be a firearms lobby on the scale of America's NRA but there is a political party which says it's dedicated to the cause. Robert Borsak is an MP for the Shooters, Fishers and Farmers Party of New South Wales.
7: There's a huge body of expense, there's a huge body of overregulation focusing on the law-abiding citizens and not thinking enough about what the criminals are up to. The Port Arthur laws uh, they simply do not address and never were it attempted to address the issues of criminal use of firearms. It was all about getting at people like me and nearly a million other Australians around Australia.
6: The gun laws here in Australia are credited with preventing another mass shooting. Last year brought another firearms amnesty, this time without the financial incentive of a buyback. But would the same approach work in the United States? Not according to Professor Philip Alpers from the University of Sydney.
1: America doesn't have a chance of enforcing this. Uh, let's face it, what the, our Prime Minister did was confiscation of private property under threat of going to jail. Now, that's not the American way. And besides, look at the scope of what they'd have to do. Australia destroyed, sent to the smelter, perhaps a 30% of its privately owned firearms. To do that in the United States, you'd have to destroy
8: 90 million guns.
6: Here in Australia then, there are few who think it would be straightforward for America to follow its example of incentivised amnesties and strict gun laws. But many here do want to offer America hope that real change can be achieved.
0: Hal Griffiths, reporting from Sydney. You're listening to NewsHour, live from the BBC in London. We've got plenty more to come in the next 30 minutes, uh, including the latest on the Texas bomb suspect, uh, who's died, and also the return of those Nigerian schoolgirls back home in Dapchi. That's coming up. Next on News uh, the EU's plans to tax big tech companies. Before that, the leaders of 44 African countries have signed a deal to create one of the world's largest free trade blocs. It's called the African Continental Free Trade Area, or ACFTA, and it's due to come into force within six months, covering more than one billion Africans. Some countries, though, including Nigeria, have refused to sign a deal and it will need to be ratified by all the signatories national parliaments before the bloc becomes a reality. David Luke is the head of the Economic Commission for Africa's Trade Policy Centre. He's been involved in setting up the ACFTA. How significant is it?
9: I think it's a big deal. The 55 African countries together now have a GDP of 2.5 trillion dollars. The African population of 55 countries together is 1.2 billion. That is growing and estimated to be about 1.5 billion by 2025. The African middle class is about 300 million and also growing. It's a young population, so it's a market that has a lot of potential.
0: The vast majority of African countries' exports, though, go to other continents.
9: Correct. Inter-African trade is relatively small. At the UN Economic Commission for Africa, we estimate it at 17 percent. Inter-African exports, 17 percent. That's small. And that's why you need this deal to remove the impediments, to remove the roadblocks, if you like, and get a smoother flow of trade between African countries. History shows that everywhere in the world, you trade with your neighbors, and these impediments now need to go.
0: Right. So are all the impediments going, or are we talking principally about tariffs?
9: Firstly, all trade agreements begin with tariffs. So in this deal, it's been agreed that 90% of tariff lines will come down to zero. The remaining 10% will be phased in. And that's good because it's good to take into account that there are sensitive sectors that countries want to protect for a period of time. But I think the biggest gains would be in the non-tariff barriers.
0: There are a few countries that haven't signed up to this deal. One of them is Africa's biggest economy, Nigeria. How big a blow is that?
9: I think at this stage, uh, the story would have been if everything had gone so smoothly that surely there must be an issue somewhere. It's not unknown in trade agreements at this stage in the conclusion of a trade agreement for there to be issues that uh, countries feel that they need to deal with in relation to their domestic politics. I'll give you an example. Recently, Canada and the EU signed a deal and Belgium I believe it was Flanders had some issues and that uh, delayed the deal for a while and the issues had to be addressed and so on. I think there are legitimate concerns and interests in Nigeria that have to be addressed as part of an internal Nigerian process. But since we have been observing the negotiations, Nigeria in fact uh, was the chair of uh, the last four negotiating rounds. The Nigerian trade minister is the current uh, chair of the African Union ministers of trade. You know, it's normal that there should be an effort to address legitimate interests in Nigeria. And we all look forward to seeing Nigeria sign the deal in due course.
0: David Luke, head of the Economic Commission for Africa's Trade Policy Centre, speaking to me from Rwanda where the deal was signed. This is NewsHour, live from the BBC, and back to our main story now, the founder of Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, admitting that his company made mistakes, which allegedly allowed the firm Cambridge Analytica to exploit the data of 50 million users uh, without them explicitly being aware of what was happening. Earlier, we discussed the European Union's efforts to subject the big digital companies such as Facebook and Google to more stringent regulation. Do those tech giants pay enough tax, though? It's a question our economics editor, Kamal Ahmed, asked the European Commissioner for Economic and Financial Affairs, Pierre Moscovici.
8: The answer is clear no, they don't. Uh, it's not totally their fault, but the uh, corporate tax system has been designed one century ago. Uh, for companies which have a physical presence. If you are a car company, you know how many workers you have, where are the plants, etc., etc. And so it's easy to tax uh, for those companies and others because it's not an anti-GAFA tax that we are proposing today. Uh, There is no physical presence. So the result is that, uh, as far as we know, those companies pay something like uh, 9% corporate tax while the rest of the economy pays 23%. And there is a problem of level playing field, a problem of fairness and equity there. And it it cannot go on that way. Those companies uh, need to pay their fair share of tax where they create profits and value. And this is what our initiative is about. Just that, but totally that. Tell us how you propose to solve this
7: incredibly difficult issue, which for years has bogged down governments, tax authorities, nobody's been able to come up with an agreeable
8: solution to taxing the digital giants like Facebook and Google more than they tax them at the moment. There are two problems. The first one is legal. Uh, Since uh, the the, the criteria for uh, our corporate tax is uh, physical presence, we need to define what digital presence is about and uh, we have set uh, some technical criteria in order to fix uh, where the value is created and linked to uh, the user. Uh, and w- this is our main proposal, uh, which is to incorporate this digital presence in- into our national corporate tax system and, and tomorrow into a-, a common consolidated corporate tax base system. And this is the uh, tax system of the 21st century that we want to design. This is the legal issue. There is also a fiscal issue. The fact that those companies don't pay their fair share of tax uh, creates a a revenue loss for our treasuries that it's hard to estimate, but uh, uh, probably around 5 to 7 billion euros. And this is why we need to design a short-term measure, which is capable of creating uh, some revenue uh, based on uh, the activity of those uh, companies. And that's what we propose as a short-term entry measure, uh, which should be replaced by a more structural approach as soon as possible. I mean, this is a fundamental change in the
7: approach to tax, taxing of revenues. How much could you raise across Europe if
8: your proposals today are accepted? We are proposing a, a taxation, which... Uh, is not dedicated to startups or scale ups. We have thresholds uh, of 750 million euros uh, revenues uh, worldwide, uh, 15 million uh, revenues uh, inside the EU. We estimate that uh, this could concern something like 100 to 150 companies. Half of them might be American, the rest for the rest of the world, one third probably would be uh, European. Uh, and those companies are those where there are uh, revenue generated through advertising or through platforms. And if this is done at a rate of 3%, which in our view is quite reasonable, this could generate something like 5 billion euros a year as a minimum. Uh, Why as a minimum? Because it's what it would certainly generate today. But you know that there is a a high expansion of that sector. uh, And so that would be uh, the start.
0: That was the uh, European Commissioner for Economic and Financial Affairs, Pierre Moscovici, and he was speaking to the BBC's Kamal Ahmed. The man suspected of being the Texas serial bomber is dead. 23-year-old Mark Anthony Condit was killed after he detonated an explosive as police officers approached his car following a high-speed chase. Our correspondent Gary O'Donoghue is in Austin, Texas.
7: Police have been searching various addresses all day using... Uh, dogs as well uh, they 've been uh, questioning two flatmates that Condit lived with, although neither of those has been arrested or charged with anything. one of them's been released uh, they 're obviously combing through any kind of information they have about him online uh, there doesn 't seem to be very much of that at this stage. There are some uh, posts going back a few years, which I think they 'll want to look at, but we're not we 're not absolutely certain they 're his. At this point in time Still no motive Still no obvious motive As to why he carried out these attacks And of course the other thing The police are saying very clearly Is because they didn't have eyes on him For 24 hours Before uh, he ended up uh, Exploding this device in his car Just a few hundred yards away From where I am now Because they hadn't seen him for 24 hours He may well have left other devices In places or in the post So that's something they're clearly worried about
0: How did they track him
7: down? couple of ways. Uh, there were some. There was some uh, response from the public to their appeals. Uh, the main way they seem to have done it is through some CCTV at one of the FedEx offices. Now you'll remember that two of the, de- the devices. Uh, went through the, the FedEx system. One exploded in a FedEx distribution plant down in San Antonio and one was stopped from exploding in a FedEx plant outside Austin. Uh, they managed to track that back. He was he was in dis- some sort of disguise at that point. But I think uh, the receipts of, of the, the boxes delivered and that CCTV, together with some, uh, some information from the public, drew them to this hotel across the road from where I am now uh, last night his car was there. They, they wanted to try and take him into custody. He drove off, and that's when that uh, confrontation took place. How
0: confident are they that he was acting alone?
7: They haven't said that for, for certain. Um, I think uh, they are trying to be very cautious about about exactly how specific and categorical they are, hence the questioning of the, of the flatmates. Uh, they'll obviously be doing the same with the family and any other friends too, Uh, It's perplexing at the moment in in terms of how he built these things. I mean, they were made from sort of stuff you can buy in hardware stores. Here, Uh, there's some suggestion they were the sort of pipe bomb construction that we've seen uh, before, but he had no obvious training. He hadn't been in the military, for example, Uh, and these things are, you know, not all that easy to to keep stable and. And uh, deliver in, in a way that you want to do do that. So, I think people will be combing over that sort of factors, those sort of factors as well, to work out you know how long you had been planning this for. Because the campaign was a an extraordinary one in the sense that he delivered six of these things, five went off in the space of three weeks. He had he had a a
0: bit of a conveyor belt going. The BBC's Gary O'Donoghue in Austin, Texas, and indeed the uh, authorities are saying that they've removed completed devices, as they put it, from the home of Mark-Anthony Condit. There's a photo on the BBC News website of a middle-aged man head bowed wiping tears from his eyes. The man is Nigerian and their tears of relief shed after the sudden release of most of the schoolgirls kidnapped by Islamist militants. Six weeks ago, 110 girls were abducted by Boko Haram from the northern town of Dapchi. In the early hours today, 101 girls were dropped back in town. Aisha Derry is one of them. Now safely back home, she described what happened when she and her schoolmates were first kidnapped.
4: At the school, we could hear lots of gunshots in the air. We were totally confused. Some Boko Haram people entered through a school gate and we started to run, but they told us to stop running or they would shoot us. Then we stopped and they asked us to get into trucks and they took us away.
0: The Nigerian Informin- Information Minister L- Lai Mohammed said that military operations have been suspended to allow Boko Haram to bring the girls home.
9: There was a deliberate pause on the part of the military. It was agreed that there would be no force, there would be no confrontation. So that's why it was possible for them to drop the girls. Don't forget that the lives of these children are much more important to us than, you know, any cheap military uh, victory.
0: Idayat Hassan is a security analyst with the governance think tank, the Centre for Democracy and Development in Abuja. Has she got a sense of what deal the government struck in order to get these girls back?
10: Yeah, actually, there are allegations that uh, around €5 million euros have been paid in exchange for these girls. But, of course, the government is yet to confirm that and they have said it's just one of those seven negotiations did you
0: well, I thought that they roundly denied that any money had been paid.
10: Ah, uh, always. It's always a denier. Nobody agrees to paying money for the release of hostage, so.
0: But you think that there must have been some sort of deal?
10: Yes, 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 of course. You know, the previous one, actually, there are allegations that up to now Nigeria would have parted up to $5 million for the release of the Chibok girls and, of course, for the release of these medical lecturers and the police women.
0: So some fighters also were released.
10: Exchanged. We
0: yeah, exchanged for, yeah, ex- exchanged ex- for the exactly. Chibok girls. How far is there concern in Nigeria that? I mean, clearly, the return of these girls is enormously welcome. But if the militants see that it's a good way of either getting their their own captured fighters out or raising revenue, that it's going to encourage more of this, these types of mass abductions.
10: Exactly. In fact, the Dapchi abduction, the pattern it takes is that that was the only essence the abduction was actually done, both for Dapchi and the Mediguri lecturers working in the Lake Chad Basin on Hoi prospecting. It was basically a revenue generation means for the insurgents. Simply, we take these guys and we get some money and the war continues. And it follows the pattern on ground because if you look at immediately the Chibok girls were released and the command that was released alongside these Chibok girls became so prominent that even this month, there has been a video released where he was even swearing to the fact that he is energized and the war against Nigeria will continue. That is one. Two, the kind of resources they also get means that the crisis at the point in time will be at the highest, leading to even more casualties being recorded on ground.
0: In which case, how controversial is this policy in Nigeria? I mean, are people just relieved these girls have been released or are they as concerned as you suggest they ought to be?
10: Actually, you know, it depends on who you talk to. But on ground in the Northeast, really, the duchy is a welcome one because it's just the community which is actually affected. And this community is very, very happy to have your children on ground. But once there is crisis, once there is actually no peace for the people in places like Meduguri, then they become very, very agitated and unhappy and hacks that, after all, more than thousands of people have already been abducted. There are so many unaccounted for citizens of Nigeria that are in Boko Haram enclaves and they've not been released. So if we have to negotiate for some, we should negotiate for all and negotiate once and for all a ceasefire so that there will actually be peace, sustainable peace for all.
0: Idayat Hassan, she was speaking to me from Abuja.
3: Hello, I'm Carrie Gracie, and until recently, I was the BBC's China editor. Well, I've got something really exciting to tell you. I'm now presenting The Real Story podcast. It's also made by the BBC World Service. We take a single topic in and around the news, and we examine it in depth, one hour, one topic, every week. The idea is to give important issues just that bit more space to breathe. So if you're looking for a slower look at our fast-changing world, Search for The Real Story wherever you find your podcasts.
0: And a reminder of our top story this hour, Facebook has admitted making mistakes and breaching trust with its users over a data harvesting scandal. Facebook's founder, Mark Zuckerberg, has issued a statement saying that the company would introduce tougher rules for third-party apps using Facebook's data. Here's an extract of the statement that we have voiced up.
1: We will investigate all apps that had access to large amounts of information before we changed our platform to dramatically reduce data access in 2014. We will conduct a full audit of any app with suspicious activity. We will ban any developer from our platform that does not agree to a thorough audit. And if we find developers that misused personally identifiable information, we will ban them and tell everyone affected by those apps.
0: You're listening to the BBC World Service and this is NewsHour. Security at schools is a global concern. In India, many classrooms now have cameras in them. But some schools are considering going further, quite a lot further, and putting GPS trackers on students. Rahul Tandon has this report.
9: We've got some breaking news coming in
4: from Kolkata where massive protests have broken outside a school in Kolkata. This is over the alleged sexual assault of a class.
11: Over the past few months, there's been lots of stories like this one on the news here in India. It's led to a nationwide debate about security at schools and it means many of them are having conversations like this one.
5: On the dashboard screen, you uh, see the list of all the students you want to track. Uh, you can track them individually as well if you click on the tracking link and find out where their exact location is. Works perfectly for security purposes.
10: In light of the recent
4: incidents, uh, how many students can we track at one go?
5: As many as you want, uh, as uh, much as the database permits.
11: Let's let them get on with that discussion. But you get a sense there of how technology is now being used in schools here to track students. Pata Biswas is an IT millionaire from Silicon Valley. He's now come back to India and it's his technology that is being used in lots of schools.
9: Schools are looking at uh, having bus video live stream to parents so that they know exactly what's happening to the kid when they're in the bus and they also want to know exactly where the kid is so we have GPS ID cards which tracks the kid exactly where he is in the campus and outside.
11: Do you think the use of this sort of technology is going to be pretty common in schools.
9: Uh, It's more about liability, yes. We have to be careful not to step on civil liberties. We leave it up to the user to make sure that they use it in the right way.
11: So schools here are embracing technology to make sure that pupils like the ones in this playground remain safe. But what about the issue of privacy and how far are they willing to go? I've come to speak to Dr. Anuradha Das, who's been a head teacher in Kolkata, For more than 20 years
10: safety security is number one in my agenda everything else can follow so there is cctv and i'm continuously watching as you can see
11: we can see the cctv behind you there where you can monitor what's happening would you look at things like gps trackers on students so you could actually track them moving around the school
10: why not if it's a question of their security then why not
11: up. I've left the school and come to a cafe that's popular with students. Because not everyone is happy with these plans. Rakesh and Seema go to a school that tried to track their pupils.
12: My school did something like that and we were really against it. They made us walk around with ID cards and like we don't know who's going to be using it. It might not just be your teachers.
4: I don't think the school should have the right to track students. Children will be children. Obviously they won't be the exact place that they're scheduled to or whatever but that's the whole point of it to have some freedom, some fun, to violate some rules within school obviously. I mean that you're just taking away their childhood.
11: The bell has gone here at South Point School, one of the largest in the world and parents are waiting to pick up their kids. So what do they make of GPS tracking?
10: Definitely tracking a teacher or a student is not a good thing to do. But then at the end of the day, the child's security is at stake.
9: You're infringing into the privacy of the of the student. You know, it's like almost putting a collar around a, you know, a pet. I don't think it's an invasion of privacy, especially as far as security is concerned.
10: I don't know because you can go in the wrong hands. So trackers may not always be helpful and can just take it off. It's not inserted in your body.
11: All the children are now safely with their parents and heading home. To ensure that that continues to happen, it looks like more schools in India are going to track their students with technology.
0: Raoul Tandon, reporting from Kolkata. The Peruvian president, Pedro Pablo Kuczynski, has offered his resignation following the publication of videos that appear to implicate him in attempts to buy votes in Congress. Dan Collins is a journalist in the Peruvian capital, Lima.
12: Well, he's tendered his resignation because he says he doesn't want to be an obstacle and create more political conflict in the country, which is what's happening at the moment. He says that his situation is untenable at the moment. So he has offered his resignation and it's up to Congress on Thursday to accept that resignation or to proceed with the impeachment vote, which was scheduled for tomorrow, Thursday, in any case. And Pedro Pablo Kuczynski's problems began when he assumed office in 2016 with a minority in Congress beating the favourite to the presidency, who held an opposition, the opposition majority in Congress and the leader Keiko Fujimori and her party have been behind these the release of these latest videos, which were secretly recorded, allegedly show supporters of Pedro Pablo Kuczynski allegedly trying to buy votes from congressmen in return for favours.
0: Right. And what were those favours? What vote was he trying to win here?
12: Well, that was allegedly to stave off the first attempt to impeach Pedro Pablo Kuczynski in December of last year, just three months ago. So, he narrowly escaped being impeached then, apparently due to a backroom deal which he struck with Kenji Fujimori, which is, who's the brother of the opposition leader Keiko Fujimori, and also the son of the jailed, formerly jailed president Alberto Fujimori, who just three days later on Christmas Eve was pardoned by Pedro Pablo Gujinski. Obviously, a lot of people think that there was a deal going on there, basically, of votes to save him from impeachment in return for the pardoning of Alberto Fujimori. But that hasn't won him any favors with the opposition. And it's a, there's a sibling rivalry between Kenji and Keiko, who are vying for the leadership of the opposition. And it also alienated uh, Kaczynski's allies, who got him elected on a anti-Fujimori platform in 2016. So it wasn't a smart move.
0: And uh, just briefly, Dan, how far has this backwashed the whole Odebrecht scandal that's really engulfed much of the continent?
12: Well, Kaczynski is just one of the uh, major political players in the country, in Peru in particular, who is uh, implicated in the Odebrecht scandal. We are hearing testimony unfolding from a, a major witness in Curitiba in Brazil, who was the Odebrecht's CEO in Peru, And he's indicated that bribes were handed out across the board. And so what's actually happening is that many political leaders here are looking to scapegoat Kuczynski to avoid the pressure coming down on them. And just in
0: a word, Kuczynski's offered his resignation. It's now before Congress. They're not going to say, please stay, are they?
12: That's not going to happen. The votes are are already set and uh, Martin Vescara who's the first vice president currently serving as the ambassador in Canada is apparently on a plane back to Peru he will assume okay. the presidency uh, for the remaining 3 years of the of Pedro Pablo Kuczynski's uh, mandate
0: Dan Collins in Le- in Lima and just before we go a uh, brief coda to the uh, Texas bomb story uh, and that is that the police are uh, removing Uh, further explosive devices, they're saying, from uh, Mark Anthony Condit's home. And uh, the FBI agent, Chris Coombs, uh, who's on the scene, said uh, people need to remain vigilant in case some parcel bombs remained undiscovered.
2: There could be other packages out there. We think we're on top of this, but we just don't know. So for the next couple of days, we want to continue that, that messaging of be careful when you see things suspicious to call it in immediately
0: the FBI, in uh, the uh, San Antonio office in Texas. That's it from this edition of NewsHour. From me, Tim Franks, and the rest of the team, thanks for listening.
3: NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.